Section 24 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Saturday, 30th October. We set out towards Ayrshire. I sent Joseph on to Luden with a message that if the Earl was at home, Dr. Johnson and I would have the honour to dine with him. Joseph met us on the road and reported that the Earl jumped for joy and said, I shall be very happy to see them. We were received with the most pleasing courtesy by his lordship and by the Countess his mother, who in her ninety-fifth year had all her faculties quite unimpaired. This was a very cheering sight to Dr. Johnson, who had an extraordinary desire for long life. Her ladyship was sensible and well informed, and had seen a great deal of the world. Her lord had held several high offices, and she was sister to the great Earl of Stair. I cannot here refrain from paying a just tribute to the character of John Earl of Luden, who did more service to the county of Eyre in general, as well as to individuals in it, than any man we have ever had. It is painful to think that he met with much ingratitude from persons both in high and low rank, but such was his temper, such his knowledge of base mankind, that, as if he had expected no other return, his mind was never soured, and he retained his good humour and benevolence to the last. The tenderness of his heart was proved in 1745-6, to when he had an important command in the Highlands, and behaved with a generous humanity to the unfortunate. I cannot figure a more honest politician, for though his interest in our county was great and generally successful, he not only did not deceive by fallacious promises, but was anxious that people should not deceive themselves by too sanguine expectations. His kind and dutiful attention to his mother was unremitted. At his house was true hospitality, a plain but a plentiful table, and every guest being left at perfect freedom felt himself quite easy and happy. While I live, I shall honour the memory of this amiable man. At night we advanced a few miles farther to the house of Mr. Campbell of Treesbank, who was married to one of my wife's sisters, and were entertained very agreeably by a worthy couple. Sunday, 31st October. We reposed here in tranquillity. Dr. Johnson was pleased to find a numerous and excellent collection of books, which had mostly belonged to the Reverend Mr. John Campbell, brother of our host. I was desirous to have procured for my fellow traveller today the company of Sir John Cunningham of Caprington, whose castle was but two miles from us. He was a very distinguished scholar long abroad, and during part of the time lived much with the learned Cunningham, the opponent of Bentley as a critic upon Horace. He wrote Latin with great elegance, and what is very remarkable, read Homer and Ariosto through every year. I wrote to him to request he would come to us, but unfortunately he was prevented by indisposition. Monday, 1st November Though Dr. Johnson was lazy and averse to move, I insisted that he should go with me and pay a visit to the Countess of Eglintoon, mother of the late and present Earl. I assured him he would find himself amply recompensed for the trouble, 
and he yielded to my solicitations, though with some unwillingness. We were well mounted, and had not many miles to ride. He talked of the attention that is necessary in order to distribute our charity judiciously. If thoughtlessly done, we may neglect the most deserving objects, and as every man has but a certain proportion to give, if it is lavished upon those who first present themselves, there may be nothing left for such as have a better claim. A man should first relieve those who are nearly connected with him by whatever tie, and then, if he has anything to spare, may extend his bounty to a wider circle. As we passed very near the castle of Dundonald, which was one of the many residences of the kings of Scotland, and in which Robert II lived and died, Dr. Johnson wished to survey it particularly. It stands on a beautiful rising ground, which is seen at a great distance on several quarters, and from whence there is an extensive prospect of the rich district of Cunningham, the Western Sea, the Isle of Arran, and a part of the northern coast of Ireland. It has long been unroofed, and though of considerable size, we could not by any power of imagination figure it as having been a suitable habitation for majesty. Dr. Johnson, to irritate my old Scottish enthusiasm, was very jocular on the homely accommodation of King Bob, and roared and laughed till the ruins echoed. Lady Eglintoon, though she was now in her eighty-fifth year, and had lived in the retirement of the country for almost half a century, was still a very agreeable woman. She was of the noble house of Kennedy, and had all the elevation which the consciousness of such birth inspires. Her figure was majestic, her manners high-bred, her reading extensive, and her conversation elegant. She had been the admiration of the gay circles of life, and the patroness of poets. Dr. Johnson was delighted with his reception here. Her principles in church and state were congenial with his. She knew all his merit, and had heard much of him from her son, Earl Alexander, who loved to cultivate the acquaintance of men of talents in every department. All who knew his lordship will allow that his understanding and accomplishments were of no ordinary rate. From the gay habits which he had early acquired, he spent too much of his time with men and in pursuits far beneath such a mind as his. He afterwards became sensible of it and turned his thoughts to objects of importance, but was cut off in the prime of his life. I cannot speak but with emotions of the most affectionate regret, of one in whose company many of my early days were passed, and to whose kindness I was much indebted. Often must I have occasion to upbraid myself that soon after our return to the mainland I allowed indolence to prevail over me so much as to shrink from the labour of continuing my journal with the same minuteness as before sheltering myself in the thought that we had done with the Hebrides, and not considering that Dr. Johnson's memorabilia were likely to be more valuable when we were restored to a more polished society. Much has thus been irrecoverably lost. In the course of our conversation this day, it came out that Lady Eglintoon was married the year before Dr. Johnson was born, upon which she graciously said to him that she might have been his mother, and that she now adopted him, and when we were going away, she embraced him, saying, My dear son, farewell. My friend was much pleased with this day's entertainment, and owned that I had done well to force him out.
Tuesday, 2nd November. We were now in a country not only of saddles and bridles, but of post-chaises, and having ordered one from Kilmarnock, we got to Auchinleck before dinner. My father was not quite a year and a half older than Dr. Johnson, but his conscientious discharge of his laborious duty as a judge in Scotland, where the law proceedings are almost all in writing, a severe complaint which ended in his death, and the loss of my mother, a woman of almost unexampled piety and goodness, had before this time in some degree affected his spirits, and rendered him less disposed to exert his faculties, for he had originally a very strong mind and cheerful temper. He assured me he never had felt one moment of what is called low spirits or uneasiness without a real cause. He had a great many good stories which he told uncommonly well, and he was remarkable for humour in Columae Gravitate, as Lord Monboddo used to characterise it. His age, his office and his character had long given him an acknowledged claim to great attention in whatever company he was, and he could ill brook any diminution of it. He was as sanguine a Whig and Presbyterian as Dr Johnson was a Tory and Church of England man, and as he had not much leisure to be informed of Dr Johnson's great merits by reading his works, he had a partial and unfavourable notion of him, founded on his supposed political tenets, which were so discordant to his own, that instead of speaking of him with that respect to which he was entitled, he used to call him a Jacobite fellow. Knowing all this, I should not have ventured to bring them together, had not my father, out of kindness to me, desired me to invite Dr. Johnson to his house. I was very anxious that all should be well, and begged of my friend to avoid three topics as to which they differed very widely, Whiggism, Presbyterianism, and Sir John Pringle. He said courteously, I shall certainly not talk on subjects which I am told are disagreeable to a gentleman under whose roof I am. Especially I shall not do so to your father. Our first day went off very smoothly. It rained and we could not get out. But my father showed Dr. Johnson his library, which in curious editions of the Greek and Roman classics is, I suppose, not excelled by any private collection in Great Britain. My father had studied at Leiden and been very intimate with the Gronovai and other learned men there. He was a sound scholar, and in particular had collected manuscripts and different editions of Anacreon and others of the Greek lyric poets with great care, so that my friend and he had much matter for conversation without touching on the fatal topics of difference. Dr. Johnson found here Baxter's Anacreon, which he told me had long inquired for in vain, and began to suspect that there was no such book. Baxter was the keen antagonist of Barnes. His life is in the Biographia Britannica. My father had written many notes on this book, and Dr. Johnson and I talked of having it reprinted. Wednesday, 3rd November it rained all day and gave Dr. Johnson an impression of that incommodiousness of climate in the West of which he has taken notice in his journey, but being well accommodated and furnished with variety of books, he was not dissatisfied. Some gentlemen of the neighbourhood came to visit my father, but there was little conversation. 
One of them asked Dr. Johnson how he liked the Highlands. The question seemed to irritate him, for he answered, How, sir, can you ask me what obliges me to speak unfavourably of a country where I have been hospitably entertained? Who can like the Highlands? I like the inhabitants very well. The gentleman asked no more questions. Let me now make up for the present neglect by again gleaning from the past. At Lord Monboddo's, after the conversation upon the decrease of learning in England, his lordship mentioned Hermes by Mr. Harris of Salisbury as the work of a living author for whom he had a great respect. Dr. Johnson said nothing at the time, but when we were in our post chairs told me he thought Harris a coxcomb. This he said of him not as a man but as an author, and I give his opinions of men and books faithfully, whether they agree with my own or not. I do admit that there always appeared to me something of affectation in Mr. Harris's manner of writing, something of a habit of clothing plain thoughts in analytic and categorical formality. But all his writings are imbued with learning, and all breathe that philanthropy and amiable disposition which distinguished him as a man. At another time during our tour, he drew the character of a rapacious Highland chief with the strength of Theophrastus or La Bruyere, concluding with these words, Sir, he has no more the soul of a chief than an attorney who has twenty hours in a street and considers how much he can make by them. He this day, when we were by ourselves, observed how common it was for people to talk from books, to retail the sentiments of others and not their own, in short, to converse without any originality of thinking. He was pleased to say, You and I do not talk from books. Thursday, 4th November I was glad to have at length a very fine day on which I could show Dr. Johnson the place of my family which he has honoured with so much attention in his journey. He is, however, mistaken in thinking that the Celtic name Auchinleck has no relation to the natural appearance of it. I believe every Celtic name of a place will be found very descriptive. Auchinleck does not signify a stony field, as he has said, but a field of flagstones, and this place has a number of rocks which abound in strata of that kind. The sullen dignity of the old castle, as he has forcibly expressed it, delighted him exceedingly. On one side of the rock on which its ruins stand runs the river Luga, which is here of considerable breadth and is bordered by other high rocks shaded with wood. On the other side runs a brook skirted in the same manner but on a smaller scale. I cannot figure a more romantic scene. I felt myself elated here and expatiated to my illustrious mentor on the antiquity and honourable alliances of my family and on the merits of its founder, Thomas Boswell, who was highly favoured by his sovereign James IV of Scotland and fell with him at the Battle of Flodden Field. And in the glow of what I am sensible will, in a commercial age, be considered as genealogical enthusiasm, did not omit to mention what I was sure my friend would not think lightly of, my relation to the royal personage, whose liberality on his accession to the throne had given him comfort and independence. I have in a former page acknowledged my pride of ancient blood, in which I was encouraged by Dr. Johnson. 
my readers therefore will not be surprised at my having indulged it on this occasion. Not far from the old castle is a spot of consecrated earth on which may be traced the foundations of an ancient chapel dedicated to St Vincent, and where in old times was the place of graves for the family. It grieves me to think that the remains of sanctity here, which were considerable, were dragged away and employed in building a part of the house of Auchinleck of the Middle Age, which was a family residence till my father erected that elegant modern mansion of which Dr. Johnson speaks so handsomely. Perhaps this chapel may one day be restored. Dr. Johnson was pleased when I showed him some venerable old trees under the shade of which my ancestors had walked. He exhorted me to plant assiduously, as my father had done to a great extent. As I wandered with my reverent friend in the groves of Auchinleck, I told him that if I survived him, it was my intention to erect a monument to him here, among scenes which in my mind were all classical, for in my youth I had appropriated to them many of the descriptions of the Roman poets. He could not bear to have death presented to him in any shape for his constitutional melancholy made the king of terrors more frightful. He turned off the subject, saying, Sir, I hope to see your grandchildren. This forenoon he observed some cattle without horns, of which he has taken notice in his journey, and seems undecided whether they be of a particular race. His doubts appear to have had no foundation, for my respectable neighbour Mr. Fairley, who with all his attention to agriculture finds time both for the classics and his friends, assures me they are a distinct species, and that when any of their calves have horns, a mixture of breed can be traced. In confirmation of his opinion, he pointed out to me the following passage in Tacitus, Ne armentis quidem suus honor, aut gloria frontis, which he wondered had escaped Dr. Johnson. On the front of the house of Auchinleck is this inscription, Quod petis hic est, est ulubris, animus si te non deficit aequus. It is characteristic of the founder, but the animus equus is, alas, not inheritable, nor the subject of devise. He always talked to me as if it were in a man's own power to attain it, but Dr. Johnson told me that he owned to him, when they were alone, his persuasion that it was in a great measure constitutional, or the effect of causes which do not depend on ourselves, and that Horace boasts too much when he says, Aequum me animum ipsit parabo. Friday, 5th November. The Reverend Mr. Dunn, our parish minister, who had dined with us yesterday, with some other company, insisted that Dr. Johnson and I should dine with him today. This gave me an opportunity to show my friend the road to the church, made by my father at great expense, for above three miles, on his own estate, through a range of well-enclosed farms, with a row of trees on each side of it. He called it the Via Sacra, and was very fond of it. Dr. Johnson, though he held notions far distant from those of the Presbyterian clergy, yet could associate on good terms with them. He indeed occasionally attacked them. One of them discovered a narrowness of information concerning the dignitaries of the Church of England, among whom may be found men of the greatest learning, virtue and piety, 
and of a truly apostolic character. He talked before Dr. Johnson of fat bishops and drowsy deans, and in short seemed to believe the illiberal and profane scoffings of professed satirists or vulgar railers. Dr. Johnson was so highly offended that he said to him, Sir, you know no more of our church than a hottentot. I was sorry that he brought this upon himself. Saturday, 6th November. I cannot be certain whether it was on this day or a former that Dr. Johnson and my father came in collision. If I recollect right, the contest began while my father was showing him his collection of medals, and Oliver Cromwell's coin unfortunately introduced Charles I and Toryism. They became exceedingly warm and violent, and I was very much distressed by being present at such an altercation between two men, both of whom I reverenced. Yet I durst not interfere. It would certainly be very unbecoming in me to exhibit my honoured father and my respected friend as intellectual gladiators for the entertainment of the public, and therefore I suppress what would, I dare say, make an interesting scene in this dramatic sketch, this account of the transit of Johnson over the Caledonian hemisphere. Yet I think I may, without impropriety, mention one circumstance as an instance of my father's address. Dr. Johnson challenged him, as he did us all at Talisker, to point out any theological works of merit written by Presbyterian ministers in Scotland. My father, whose studies did not lie much in that way, owned to me afterwards that he was somewhat at a loss how to answer, but that luckily he recollected having read in catalogues the title of Durham on the Galatians, upon which he boldly said, Pray, sir, have you read Mr. Durham's excellent commentary on the Galatians? No, sir, said Dr. Johnson. By this lucky thought, my father kept him at bay, and for some time enjoyed his triumph but his antagonist soon made a retort which I forbear to mention. In the course of their altercation, Whiggism and Presbyterianism, Toryism and Episcopacy were terribly buffeted. My worthy hereditary friend, Sir John Pringle, never having been mentioned, happily escaped without a bruise. My father's opinion of Dr. Johnson may be conjectured from the name he afterwards gave him, which was Ursa Major. But it is not true, as has been reported, that it was in consequence of my saying that he was a constellation of genius and literature. It was a sly, abrupt expression to one of his brethren on the bench of the Court of Session, in which Dr. Johnson was then standing, but it was not said in his hearing. Sunday, 7th November. My father and I went to public worship in our parish church, in which I regretted that Dr. Johnson would not join us. For though we have there no form of prayer, nor magnificent solemnity, yet as God is worshipped in spirit and in truth, and the same doctrines preached as in the Church of England, my friend would certainly have shown more liberality had he attended. I doubt not, however, but he employed his time in private to very good purpose. His uniform and fervent piety was manifested on many occasions during our tour, which I have not mentioned. His reason for not joining in Presbyterian worship has been recorded in a former page. Monday, 8th November. 
Notwithstanding the altercation that had passed, my father, who had the dignified courtesy of an old baron, was very civil to Dr. Johnson, and politely attended him to the post-chaise which was to convey us to Edinburgh. Thus they parted. They are now in another and a higher state of existence, and as they were both worthy Christian men, I trust they have met in happiness. But I must observe, in justice to my friends' political principles and my own, that they have met in a place where there is no room for Whiggism. We came at night to a good inn at Hamilton. I recollect no more. Tuesday, 9th November I wish to have shown Dr. Johnson the Duke of Hamilton's house, commonly called the Palace of Hamilton, which is close by the town. It is an object which, having been pointed out to me as a splendid edifice from my earliest years, in travelling between Auchinleck and Edinburgh, has still great grandeur in my imagination. My friend consented to stop and view the outside of it, but could not be persuaded to go into it. We arrived this night at Edinburgh after an absence of eighty-three days. For five weeks together of the tempestuous season there has been no account received of us. I cannot express how happy I was on finding myself again at home. End of section 24